We'll turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app, if you would please, to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, and we're going to be reading from verses 27 uh, through 36. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. This is what the Word of God says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray For those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from what you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Lord, as we conclude reading your word just now, we are reminded of your mercy. We're reminded that we who love you, we who follow you, are not being treated as our sins deserve but instead have benefited from your sovereign saving grace and giving us infinitely more than we could ever merit. And so with grateful hearts, we thank you for that grace and unashamedly ask you for even more grace right now. We need to hear from you. And so would you give us grace to hear and understand your word and do it for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're picking up where we left off on our journey through Luke uh, two weeks ago, and we're in the middle of what some refer to as Christ's Sermon on the Plain, since in back in verse 17, it says he came down, stood at a level place, and began to preach. Now, in the preceding verses, Jesus talks of the good life, right, and the not-so-good life. But if you notice, uh, he's calling what the world calls bad to be good, things like Poor and hungry and weeping people, people who are hated, excluded, and reviled. These people are all spoken about positively in the context of being in the kingdom of God, of being blessed. Look back again at uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Then Jesus goes on to announce woes to people whom one would have thought had not a woe in the world, right? The rich, those who are full, people who are laughing at life, and those spoken well of. Jesus pronounces not blessing, but woe to them. Uh, He says they've received their reward now. They're experiencing comfort now. Their victory is in this world, but it will not be so in eternity. And so understand the context in which we find our text 
today. Jesus is preaching words that would have completely confounded people, and I think if you're honest, probably completely confound us today. It's what Pastor Brad refers to as upside-down living. It's not that Jesus is just preaching differently than others before him had preached. It's not just a, a change of style or an added nuance. He's reorienting them with the Word of God in a way that would have completely turned their worlds upside down and their values upside down. And friends, it takes a tremendous amount of thoughtfulness, of focus, and of intentionality to operate according to this worldview because it goes against everything that we would know to be normal. I've had the privilege of traveling overseas and serving in Albania uh, several, several times over the years uh, and coming alongside our wonderful missionaries, Blair and Sue Alvidrez. Uh, my first time there, uh, even every time I go, I have to get back used to like Albanian culture. Not that I'm an expert on it, but I have to like, okay, wait, I'm not in America anymore. I'm in Albania because they do things differently. Not, not necessarily right or wrong. It's just a matter of different. It's not America. It's Albania. And so one of the things I had to get used to uh, that tripped me up a lot uh, the first time I was there was, get this, I kid you not. This means yes. Just think about that for a minute. That'll jack you up, bro. All right? This means yes. It's a simple difference, right? I mean, just, hey, Pete, remember every time you want to say yes, just do this. It's just a very, it's not, it doesn't take a lot of extra muscle movement. It's very simple. So this means yes. Here's where it gets interesting. Staying at a hotel... And there's a little, I don't know, restaurant bar area. And so I went down and I asked for a Coke. And uh, the guy held up a Diet Coke. He went, huh? I went, no. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times that happened. I drank more diet soda than I ever cared to drink in my entire life. Because I just kept forgetting. Like, if I just went like that, it'd be, th- think about this. Do you realize how big a deal this is? Guess what people do while you preach and they agree with you? Yeah, do it. Do it. You all agree with me right now, right? Do it. We'll mess you up. You're like, they're not getting it? Are they, did I not get my, no, they're getting every word. They're super excited about it. Being changed as we speak. They're just, that's why they're doing this. Imagine as you're going to push, there's a certain muscle group that you use. You don't even realize it. I don't even realize it, but like when we're pushing a door open, like there's a certain muscle group. Imagine that in order to push something open, you needed to pull. Imagine that as on your way home, it's not that your car doesn't work. It's just that now when you steer right, it goes left. The exact amount to the right. It's not careening all over the place, but it's a very simple change, right? Just think right is left. Just think left is right. Just know that when you want to go this way, if you want to just make a lane change this way, just turn a little that way. It's going to work. It's really not that big of a deal. Like, it's not even hard to understand. What I just said is easy to understand. Just this means for the duration of your time today, this means yes. It's a small change. It takes a tremendous amount of thoughtfulness 
of focus, of diet soda, and of intentionality to lay aside what you believe to be normal and embrace something that is new. And similarly, it takes a tremendous amount of thoughtfulness and focus and intentionality to lay aside unbiblical values and embrace the values of Jesus. And friends, I don't know if there's anything more backwards, more strange, more upside down than what we see in the text today. And that is love for enemies. Not not just don't retaliate, not just stay neutral, not just tolerate, love for enemies. I mean, think about it. When you think of some of the things Christians are known for, things that mark a true Christian, not everything, I would argue, stands out in such stark contrast against the backdrop of the world. It's very different. We know that as Christians. But, you know, you take something like repentance, people wanting to change. There's many people in the world who could appreciate that, right? People want to change. They want to be better than they used to be. They want to learn from their mistakes. Now, that's not all that repentance is. But at face value, uh, you being a different person or a better person today than you were yesterday or this year than you were last year, many people can appreciate that. You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate that necessarily. Humility. I mean, who doesn't love someone who's kind and gentle and doesn't speak highly of themselves and looks to esteem other people? We know that that's a uniquely Christian attribute. But not everyone in the world is going to look at it. That's weird. Some people say that's really, that's really cool. There are worldly people who are gentle and kind and at least have the appearance of humility. A bearing spiritual fruit. Now, the world wouldn't understand what the fruit of the Spirit is, but wanting to show forth the things that one is learning from a text that we embrace called the Bible. I think there's people, I know, I know worldly people who they may, not, they may not believe the Bible, they may not be Christians, but they're like, I kind of get that. Like you read this and you want to do what it says. That makes, that makes sense. Even a, a changed life. Wanting your life to be changed. Bible reading regularly. Wanting to better understand the text of Scripture that you embrace. Lots of these things aren't immediately rejected by the world. They kind of get it. Many of them can be appreciated by believers and unbelievers alike. Not in a sense of worship. Not fully understanding it. But they're like, I get, yeah, that's, you do you. That's cool. I get it. But nothing is quite as different from the world's way of thinking as the way Christians love. Nothing. The way we love God... I have a genuine affection for a God that we've never met face to face and only know and love and embrace because of the gift of faith that has been given to us, as we're told in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. That's completely different from the world. The way we love each other, the fact that we really are what? Family? The fact that I can get off a plane in Albania... And putting all this stuff aside, just look at someone who is a Christian and we have absolutely nothing else in common. But because of that one thing we have in common, we can hit the ground running. Why? Because we're family. There's a love, there's a kindred spirit that we have for one another, even though I may not even remember that person's name, but we both love Jesus. We've both been saved from above. Our hearts and minds have been changed. That's, that's pretty unique. Even the way we love our neighbors. What Christians have historically done for people. Christians and non-Christians alike throughout the world because they love God and therefore 
love their neighbors, the amount of Christians that are behind the building of hospitals, the amount of Christians that are behind the starting of orphanages and other ministries that would reach out to people who are their neighbors because they show love for their neighbor. Nothing is quite as different from the world's way of thinking as the ways Christians love. But guys, I don't know if anything is so different from the ways of the world than Christians loving their enemies. Jesus previously preached on how the self-righteous view themselves, right? They see themselves as the heroes, and Jesus is like, you're really the zeros. The self-proclaimed heroes are really the zeros, but then people who see themselves as just nothing, as inept, as can never have access to the kingdom of God, the zeros, they're really, he's like, you're the... Heroes, you, you're, you're, it's, I'm flipping it around, man. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those people are blessed. And he continues to address his genuine disciples in our text today. Pick it up in verse 27. He says, uh, but I say to you who what? Who hear. Uh, to you who really genuinely hear. Not just you have the ability to hear as in you're not deaf. But you who hear, who understand, who are really actively listening, who want to do what the word says, who want to please the Lord. You who hear. He tells them in addition to being known by a hatred for their own sin, they should be known by not a tolerance for or a liking of, but a genuine love for their enemies. Now, before we move forward with our text today, I actually think it's best that we take a little bit of a step back and talk about what motivates us to do what we do when it comes to loving our enemies. Like we could certainly take the approach today by saying we need to love our enemies because that's what Jesus says to do. It could be a very short sermon. Everything I just said was accurate. We do need to obey Christ. If Jesus says to jump, we just respond by saying how high. Obedience to Christ is always appropriate. But again, I can't think of much in life that goes completely against our grain than a call to love our enemies. I could list a ton of reasons as to why I shouldn't love my enemies. It's not very hard. You could do the same. I mean, legitimate, not excuses. We can sit and have a very worthwhile conversation as to why this is like not a good idea at all, as to what might come about if we do this, as to how there's not even a historical precedent uh, for this, that, you know, uh, the Allied forces didn't achieve victory by loving the Germans to death. Like, this is not something that your sports team is going to do. The the Bengals are not taking a new, they may want to try it, but they're not taking a new approach in like loving the Steelers next season, and maybe that'll work out like so well. This is not something you see outside of the pages of Scripture. It's not something you're going to find displayed for you, taught to you, or supported by others apart from the Word of God. Now, there's a popular saying. I bet you can finish the sentence. See if you can. Where there's a will, there's a way, right? Where there's a will, there's a way. Somebody wants something bad enough, they're going to find a way to do it. See the target, hit the target. If somebody really has a desire to achieve something or to accomplish something, they're going to find a way to do it. Where there's a will, there's a way. If someone really wants to do something, he'll figure it out. She'll find a way to do it. Who has a will to love their enemies? Who's just, you know, I've always had this desire to love people who are my enemies. Said no one ever. That's not innate in any of us. So it's true that where there's a will, there's a way. If you want something bad enough, you'll find a way to get it. What if there's not a will? 
So I'm not going to start out today by talking about the way to do this yet, because I don't want to assume that we even want to know how. I don't want to start out with how. I want to start out with why. Because the why drives everything. The why drives everything. And as surely as where there's a will, there's a way, I would also say this, where there's a why, there's a will. Where there's a why, there's a will. When there's a reason behind something, that will oftentimes be used by God to produce within us a desire to do something. I've been a Christian for quite some time now. I've been in pastoral ministry for quite a while too. I know in my own life, when I found myself lacking in a certain area in my walk with the Lord, it's not because I've forgotten what or how. It's because I've forgotten why. If there's a time in the Lord where my personal Bible reading, not my studying for sermons, my, my work, but my personal time with the Lord is lacking or rushed or not as good as it hasn't been. If you said, Peter, what do you think's behind that? I wouldn't look at you and say, you know, I, I feel like I've just forgotten how it works. I keep looking. I don't know how, I don't know how it works. How do I, how do I, I haven't forgotten how a Bible, like I haven't forgotten how. Something's happened within me that I've forgotten that man really cannot live on bread alone, but needs to be fed by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Something in me, I've forgotten the fact that I really do need uh, the Lord more than I think I need him. That I maybe have fallen into self-sufficiency in some way, shape, or form. It's not because I've forgotten how. I don't know, is it this way or is it this way? Which way do the pages go? That's not a thing. I didn't forget how or what. I lost my why. And that's why I lost my will and that's why I lost my way. And I know I'm not alone in this because I see it in other people too. When whether it's in counseling or community group or just in my discussions with other people, when God-loving, Jesus-loving people find themselves at a loss when it comes to their desire to do that which is pleasing to the Lord, they've forgotten their way. It's not because they've forgotten how. They've forgotten why. The why drives everything. Where there's a why, there's a will, and where there's a will, there's a way. And so with that in mind, we're going to come back to Luke 6, but I want to really focus on why, and in order to do that, I'm going to ask you to go or scroll or flip to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. It says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6 says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't think you'll ever have a desire to love your enemies if you forget that God loved you when you were his enemy. I think if you forget that fact, good luck trying to love your enemies. You'll always come up with a reason, a legitimate reason, as to why you shouldn't do that. So that's where we need to start, and that's our first point today. Number one, you need to remember that God loved you when you were his enemy. 
See, in verse 6, when Paul says, for while we were still weak, Paul isn't saying that we had less strength than we normally would. Uh, that's what weak could mean in our day and age, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty weak because I'm pretty tired or I'm recovering from an illness. I'm, I'm, I'm rather weak. I'm weaker than I typically am. The Greek, the Greek word asthenes means helpless, uh, impotent. It's not that we're lacking strength no, we once had or could maybe get back on our own. It's that we're without strength that we ever had to begin with. And so uh, picture it. There's a, a baby that's born. That baby can't lift a heavy object, right? Because finish the sentence, it's just a baby, right? Can't lift a heavy object. But the baby, Lord willing, is going to grow, become healthy, and be able to lift that heavy object. And so the baby's weak because it's a baby. He or she is a baby and then grows and is able to lift that heavy object. Guess what happens on the other side of that bell curve of life? Age usually results in the losing of strength and becomes weak once again. And there's that bell curve of, you know, can't do it until I can do it until I can't do it again. And so you're weak, you're strong, and then in some ways you become become weak. That's just the result of living with fallen bodies. But there's another type of weakness you have. Like, for example, you can't lift the building you're sitting in right now. And that's not because one day you'll be able to. You can't lift the home you live in. And that's not because, but one day you will. Or you're like, back when I was younger, man, really, I could have lifted this house, man. You, could have seen, you should have seen me. No, that's the type of weakness that Paul is talking about. That's asthenes. It's a weakness that you have that you'll never not have. You are unable, inept, impotent. You do not have the ability, the power to do this thing. Asthenes. That's what Paul's saying. For while we were still asthenes, we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So if God waited for us to re- recover from our sin, it never would have happened. That's why Christ died for us while we were weak and ungodly. I put Ephesians 2 verses 4 and following in your outline. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Even though we were utterly helpless to bring ourselves to God, he sent his son for us in our sinful condition. It's not that we are spiritually sick and hopefully one day we'll take some spiritual vitamins, take some spiritual medicine, do some spiritual PT, ST, spiritual therapy, maybe, and then all of a sudden find ourselves back to health. Spiritually dead, asthenes, weak as in you are too weak to lift this building and you will never lift this building. We don't have a shot. And so also, if God waited for us to repent on our own, we also wouldn't have a chance. Pick it up in verse 7, Romans 5, verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You need to understand that God hates every sinful thought. The same God who hates every sinful thought, the same God who hates every sinful deed, that's the God that loves sinners who think and do these things. Lots of people paint God out to be this, he's really kind of so sad that people are just not choosing the right way and why I gave them so much better, I have given their word, why won't that make me so sad? You know, him and Jesus and the Holy Spirit having like a hug fest in the Trinity. That's not, the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked. You know how often? Every day. 
every day. God hates sin. Totally ticks him off with a righteous anger that you and I know not of. The same God who hates every sinful thought, hates every sinful deed, loves sinners who think and do those things. People who openly hate God have zero desire to give up their sin. We're the ones that are objects of God's love. When we were powerless to escape from our sin, powerless to escape death, powerless to resist Satan, and powerless to please God in any way, God amazingly sent his son to die in our place. If God waited us to shape up on our own, we wouldn't have a chance. But he didn't do that. Romans 5 and verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, not when we finally stopped sinning, God said, finally, and sent Jesus down on his way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Pick it up in Romans 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And so if God waited for us to befriend him, we would be lost forever. He reconciled us to himself while we were his enemies. That word that you see in Romans 5 verse 10, that that word enemies, the same Greek word, ekthros, that's used in Luke chapter 6 in our text today. Same word. When it comes to loving our enemies, we need to go back, not to how, but to the why. Why does God call us to love our enemies? Well, here's why. Because that's exactly what he did for us in Christ. And you need to know that if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, if you've been the recipient of God's sovereign saving grace, you received God's love while you were not a friend, but an enemy of God. And the love you have for God is a response to his initiation of a relationship towards you. It's not that all of a sudden you wised up and said, I need to follow Jesus. And God said, oh, I'm so happy you did that. It's about time. I've missed you so much. You were his enemy. You wanted nothing to do do with him. And you look at me and you say, Pastor, you don't even know me. I was bad, but I've never been like all that bad. Maybe you've been that bad, but I was never all that. I realized I was not saved. But then one day I, I came to Christ and decided I wanted to follow him. Listen to me. There's all different types of corpses. Right? Some corpses are at the scene of a tragic accident and they're bloody and they're mangled and they're absolutely dead. Other corpses are dressed up really nicely and they have chemicals within them and there's makeup on them to make them look nice. But guess what they both stand in common? They're both what? Dead. Guess how many of them can get up on their own? Zero. And so whether or not you're all dressed up nice in your spiritual corpse or you've actually shown your spiritual death with the choices you've made, it doesn't make a difference because dead is dead is D-E-A-D, dead. And if you're saved, God has given you life. And there's no such thing as not being, I'm not, you know, I mean, this isn't like a Monty Python. I'm not that dead. I'm only half dead, right? That's not what this is. Dead is dead. And so we look to the word of God so that we realize there's no such thing as someone who is deader than me. Dead is dead. 
God showed his love for you while you were an enemy. An enemy of God. You need to never forget that you're the recipient of God's sovereign saving grace and that you received that grace as an enemy. That's when God sent his son for you. That's when God placed his love upon you. That's when God saved you. That's why Paul says what he does in Colossians 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He didn't wait for us to recover. Because our sin-sick souls never would do that on our own. He didn't wait for us to shape up because we were drowning in sin without a hope in the world. He didn't wait for us to befriend him because we never ever would have. And so in essence, what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 6 isn't without warrant and it's not without precedent. He's not asking you to do something that nobody's ever done to you. Instead, he's saying to do to others what God has done for you in Christ. You were once an enemy of God and that's when he Loved you. What about you? When was the first time you remember learning you were, at some point, an enemy of God? I don't know if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time. You can look back on your life and see kind of what I call like, a, like spiritual blips on the radar, high watermarks, maybe. Of course, one of them would be being saved. <laughs> I believe the Lord saved me in 1989. <laughs> then I think it was a, a few years after that, in 1995, where God really got a, a grip on my heart, and I really just couldn't get enough of his word, and I was reading it constantly. Just, I just wanted to read it and read it and read it and read it. And I wanted to serve with whatever gifts the Lord gave me. And if the church was open, I was there. And if there was an opportunity to serve, I was there. And I was a young, pretty foolish teenager with lots to learn, but had a, a real desire to grow in the things of God. And I came to some really wacky conclusions, really bizarre, not because of the Bible, because I was a, just a wacky, bizarre foolish teenager. But still, I really loved Jesus and he really loved me. Then I remember in January of 2000 coming to two very big realizations. Uh, The first was that the Y2K fear was all a hoax. But the second was the fact that that's when I came to embrace and understand the doctrines of God's sovereign grace. One of which is the fact that I was totally depraved as a sinner. And that does not mean that I was as bad as I could be, but that does mean that my sin nature had affected, infected, and defected every area of my mind and heart and body and soul. There was no area of my life that was without need of being rescued. And I came to the realization that when I was saved in 1989, that didn't happen because God finally just made sense to me and I chose to pursue him. But that happened because God finally gave my soul the spiritual life that it needed. And the love that I had for Christ was a response to his initiating love to me. 
Friends, when you realize that your salvation is centered on God from beginning to end, it will radically change your view of walking with the Lord. Knowing that God pursued you as an enemy, as someone who was afar off, as someone who wouldn't have even had the ability to come to God had he not breathed life into your dead mind, heart, body, and soul, that will change your life. My love for him was a response to his love for me. He initiated, I responded. I was an enemy and he loved me from enemy, not just to someone who is neutral, but from enemy to a son, to a child of God. And friends, if you're a Christian today, I hope that truth sinks in and never, ever gets old. That you never look back upon coming to Jesus as the greatest step of self-improvement you've ever made, but that you look back and realize that when you open the door to Jesus in your life, it's because the Holy Spirit broke into the back door of your sinful, cold, dark heart, kicked its way to the back of you and said, open that door. You need Jesus. And you said, yes, sir. And you opened the door and Jesus came flooding into your life because that's how it works. It's not that God's up there going, oh, I just hope and just like, what does he do? Does he cross his fingers? Does he have fingers? I don't even know. I hope that people, I hope they choose me. God rescues people. He rescues people. He takes people who are drowning with no hope and no help and calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light when they're his enemy. And that needs to sink into us and never, never, never get old. And so that's why we go to point number two. You're just like Jesus when you act in Christian love towards your enemies. That's what God did for us. It's not unprecedented. It's what God did for his people. It's what God did for sinners like you and like me. Looking back at our text today in Luke chapter 6, pick it up in verse 27 again. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. The Greek term translated good is kalos. Kalos. It's not about being polite. It's not... Uh, niceties, it's not superficialities, not at all. It's literally saying, do that which will benefit your enemy. Overcome evil with good. It's looking out for the good of another, even if they have your worst in mind. So when someone does something that shows they have our worst in mind, that they're against us, we do something showing that, they ha- that we have their best interest in mind. And this doesn't only go for what we do, but also for what we say, right? Jesus refers to this when he says, bless those who curse you. When we're cursed for Christ's sake, we bless for Christ's sake. Jesus says, pray for those who abuse you. A better translation would be to pray for those who mistreat or threaten or revile you. It's what we see Jesus doing on the cross. When Jesus is placed on the cross, what are his first words on the cross? His father forgive them. They know not what they do. What is he doing? He's praying for those who are against him. Praying for those who have persecuted him. Not calling down judgment that he would have every right to do. Not wiping them off from the face of the earth, which he would have every right to do and had the ability to do. You and I wish we could do that. Imagine actually, it's one thing to wish it. Imagine being able to do it. And then not doing it. And then choosing love. Christians take step towards their enemies to show them love. That's what God did for us. 1 John 4 and verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And so you're just like Jesus when you 
act in Christian love, but you're also just like Jesus when you react in Christian love to your enemies. Luke, Luke chapter 6, verse 29 says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. It's probably just as important to talk about what this is not as it's important to talk about what it is. Here's what this isn't. Jesus isn't saying there's no place for self-defense in the life of a Christian. We haven't gotten there yet, but in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells his disciples as they go to take a sword with them. He says it's so important that even if you need to sell your cloak to take one, you should do that. Take a sword with you. You might need it. You might need to protect yourself. We have civil authorities in place to protect us from lawbreakers who would do harm to people. That's not what this is talking about. Jesus is talking about what happens when we're unjustly humiliated. When disciples were thrown out of the synagogues, for example, that was often accompanied with being beaten or being slapped across the face. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says on no less than five occasions, he was whipped by the Jews and received 40 minus one lashes. Jesus says instead of retaliating, Christians accept the mistreatment and continue to love their enemies. Jesus demonstrates this for us in John chapter 18 and verse 22 when he is slapped across the face by someone for the way he spoke to the high priest. Jesus' response is in the very next verse. And he doesn't slap him back. But he still calls out the injustice, but doesn't retaliate. Jesus says this, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Jesus points out the wrongdoing, but doesn't retaliate. In doing that, he loves his enemies. It's really bizarre, isn't it? We'll get into why it's bizarre in a minute. Also in verse 29, from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Essentially, he's saying if someone takes your coat, give him your shirt also. Uh, You've heard the saying, that guy's so generous, he'll give you the what? The shirt off his back. But in Jesus' day, you have to understand many people only owned one coat or cloak. And they'd use it as a coat, but also as a blanket when they slept. So this was their coat, which also was their blanket. It's not like in our bed, we have like several blankets. Sarah and I get on opposite sides. I get on seven, she gets on three. I may not see her for days. Like it's different. It's not just one blanket, right? But they had like, this was their cloak. It also served as the blanket. This was a big deal. So much so that you would actually read in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24 that the Mosaic law required any coat that was taken as a pledge had to be returned before sunset. Why? It's going to get cold and the person's going to need to go to sleep. To keep a person's cloak would be highly offensive and actually against the Mosaic law. Jesus was saying when that happens, Christ's disciples don't retaliate but rather to continue to lovingly minister to those who persecute them, even if that results in losing their shirt or their inner garment. And so just, I got to, you smile because you got to think like someone saying, give us your coat. And the guy's like, oh, do you want, I'll give you my shirt too. The thief might be like, yeah, take the coat. That's super weird. We're going to go and like, that's really bizarre. I mean, because that is weird. Give me your coat now. And all of a sudden, the person starts undressing like, I have these shoes too, and here's a phone. And 
It's bizarre. And that's what God calls us to act. Bizarre to get people's attention. Bizarre so that people would understand. There's something really different about Jesus and his followers. There's something really different about a man who was nailed to a cross and his first saying on the cross is, Father, forgive those who have nailed me to this cross. There's something really different about a man who is dying on the cross and someone on one side of him says, Hey, King of the Jews, why don't you get us down if you're high and mighty? And then someone else on the other side says, No, no, remember when you come to his kingdom. And he chooses not to correct the one guy, but to look at the other guy and say, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And looks down and says, Hey, do me a favor, take care of my mother while I die. That's why the centurion said, Truly this man's the son of God. I've executed, I've nailed a lot of people to crosses. I've killed a lot of people. I'm a battle-hardened centurion. Let me tell you something. This guy's the son of God. Romans 12 and verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Why? Because Christians demonstrate consistent love for others regardless of the circumstances and consistent love for Christ regardless of the cross because this shocks the world. Regardless of the cost, this shocks the world. The world, it shocks them. Nothing stands out to the world more than kindness and mercy and grace and love when one would expect mean-spiritedness, retaliation, anger, and hatred. You know that I've said before that my parents were divorced. I was raised by my single mom. And she was not a Christian at the time of the Divorce, but God used that in her life to show her her need for Christ, and she was saved a few years after. She was not perfect. She is not perfect. Um, she's pretty scary. She's 4'11, but whoo! Mom ain't happy, and nobody happy. But God radically changed her life. And so the anger and the hostility and even uh, outbursts of wrath, even in a violent nature that accompanied her losing everything, grew strangely dim as she fell in love with Jesus. Do you know that my mom spoke highly of my dad all of my days as a kid? That she would go out of her way to call attention, to call my attention, call my sister's attention about how hard dad works. How the fact that he shows up to my Little League game and our piano recitals is more than some dads do in a divorce situation. My dad is not a believer. He has said publicly before The only reason I have a relationship, whatever relationship I have with any of my children is because of the way Nancy spoke of me when I wasn't there. And that stands out to him because that's bizarre. That's crazy. I mean, you would look at my mom if she was super upset and said, let me tell you about your father and what he did. You would say, she's speaking truth. She has a right. Like, we would give her a bye, right? Who would come alongside her? How dare you say that? 
Who among us wouldn't understand that? And it's not because mom wasn't, didn't have it in her. Trust me, she has it in her, bro. It's because she had been loved while she was an enemy of God. And that didn't make her perfect, but that did give her the ability to love people whom the world would view as her absolute enemies. And my dad's not a believer, but that still stands out to him. He gives testimony of that to this day. That made a huge impact on my sister and I. And that's why you're, point number four, you're just like Jesus when you extend mercy and grace toward your enemies for the sake of their souls. You're never less like the world when you, than when you love your enemies. You are never less like the world than when you love your enemies. If you look at Luke 6, verses 32 and following, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? When I was reading that this week, I thought, it's kind of funny wording, because I think he's asking a rhetorical question, but there's an obvious answer. Like, if you love those who love you, what benefit? I'm like, benefit? Uh, they love me back, I love them. Like, there's an obvious benefit. If you lend to people whom you expect to return, what benefit is that to you? It's like, uh, I get my money back, and they get to borrow my money. Like, it seems obvious what the benefit is. But Jesus is saying, what benefit is that to you? Because we're talking about a different, remember, this means yes. So we're talking about a different value system. So the, what you call a benefit is not the benefit that he's going for. He's saying, what benefit is that to you to add people to the kingdom? What benefit is that to you to swimming upstream? What benefit is that to you to being odd for God in an evangelistic way where somebody would look and say, truly this person is the son of God or truly this person is a daughter of the king? When Jesus asks these questions, it's not that there aren't answers. It's that he's saying you should be going for the benefits that Jesus is going for. Spiritual benefits, eternal benefits, evangelistic benefits. Benefits for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the benefit of someone else's soul. Where someone would say, just like the centurion did at the foot of the cross. Just like he said, this guy's the son of God. And someone looks and says, this there's something different about this. isn't just religion, pious deeds. I mean, this this person's that this is per, like this. Steve loves God. Cindy loves God. Right? Jennifer loves God. John loves God. I mean, this is different. This isn't just habits people are in. Truly, they know and love the Son of God. And that's why you're never more like Christ than when you extend mercy, not treating people as they deserve, and grace, going above and beyond to treat them better than they'd ever expect. You're never more like Christ than when you're doing that. And so he closes out this section the same way he started it, Jesus, Luke 6 and verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. We extend mercy and grace to our enemies. We react in love to their hatred. We take the first steps toward them. We initiate 
the interaction with them, as we take steps in love, and we do all of this because that's what God has done for us in Christ, pursuing us while we were his enemies so that we might become sons and daughters of the king. And some of you, as you hear this, you might be being pursued by God right now because you know you're an enemy of God. That God is confronting you with biblical truth because you are an enemy of God. And as far as you try to run, he outruns you. And as fast as you try to run away from him, he's right there behind you. And he's not stopping until he gets you. And I would look to you today and say, if that's you, if you know God has his eyes on you. And as you hear me talking about being an enemy of God, you say, that's me. Today, today, that can change. By you looking to Christ and saying, I believe. I believe. I believe that you are the son of God. I'm not going to run anymore by you surrendering to God, by you throwing up your hands and saying, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Truly, this man, this God-man, was and is the son of God. Lord, would you do that for your glory? Would you call people unto yourself to this, at this very moment, this very day, would you show enemies that they can be not just not enemies, not a place of neutrality, but they could be in the kingdom, in the family of God, sons and daughters of the king. Do that for your glory. For those of us who are in the family of God, Help us to love our enemies because we were loved as an enemy. Help us remember your grace and mercy. That you are calling us to do something that is not unprecedented. But that you, Christ, are the greatest example of one who loves his enemies. Do that, Lord, in our lives. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.